Conditions are not peaceful. In other words, your thoughts, they might be interesting, but they're not peaceful. Feelings, memories, hopes, expectations, fears, doubts, worries. The physical condition, the sensory world, well, it's, it's not a peaceful thing. It can be interesting, exciting, fascinating, boring, miserable, horrible. But what I mean by the word peace is the unshakable heart in each one of us. In other words, that which is unconditioned, that doesn't begin and end or change. Now, in these other things, they're subject to change, aren't they? You're in good health, and then you can be in bad health. And you're young, and then you get old. Whatever is born dies. You have successes and failures. You have good times, bad times. These things are all conditioned. All that is subject to change is what we call conditioned phenomena, sankara. And this is what is not self. We say, sape sankara anatta. All conditioned phenomena is not self. Now you might know this when I you know, you might accept this because I, uh, you might think I know something you don't. So you believe me. But that's still not, that's not practice of meditation. That's just believing what somebody else is telling you. So the practice of meditation is the uh, continuous watching and observing the, the things that we're attached to. Not judging, you know, you say, I shouldn't be attached to anything. That's another idea you have, that you shouldn't be attached. We're not condemning attachment, taking a stand against attachment. The problem with me is I'm attached, and I shouldn't be. The different, different thing is not taking a position against for or against anything, but just observing. 
the silent watcher, the silent listener. You listen to, to that mind that's always looking for something, always having opinions and views, making judgment, criticism, fantasizing, criticizing yourself, criticizing everything else, complaining, despairing, creating all kinds, having fixed views, fixed opinions. We listen to that. Now so much of our life, so much of the suffering of our human condition is operating from assumptions that we make about ourselves and the world we live in. But the assumption, since the time we were born, according to our families and society, everywhere in the world, we assume that we are these conditioned things, aren't we? We all assume that this is me. Our language gives this meaning, conveys this meaning, doesn't it? When I say me, I am Sumato Bhikkhu. You say, I am this monk, this person. But this is in a it, but this is a conventional reality. But it's not the ultimate truth. So where we're moving toward in meditation is not toward reinforcing conventional reality or just adopting new or different kind of conventional roles. That's not it. But breaking through the delusion, the delusions that we've acquired so far by this insidious grasping and identity with the conditions of the body and mind. Able to do this, practice it, it with kind of determination. A tremendous amount of patience necessary. Be patient. Willing to endure unpleasant mental and physical conditions. Willing to be miserable and let it go. Now in the religious life, spiritual development, we all learn how to be completely miserable. Now you think, we probably sit there and chitter just in a state of ecstasy and bliss all the time. Right? Those monks must just be that beautiful chitters, monasteries blissed out. But actually the peace, the peacefulness of that monastery comes not, to, not from being blissed, but from being at ease with misery. In other words, not creating any problems. We train ourselves to accept life. We live life in a certain way. As monks, you have a certain moral code that you live by. And this code, the uh, moral code is, is our kind of vehicle, our form that we use, so that we, when we live together, we don't do things to each other that are harmful or cruel. We don't ask each other or do things that would, we'd regret later. So we live in a way, at least, that we can abide 
live together in a, in a monastery in which we do not cause a lot of uh, problems to each other. But still the force of habit is strong in, in every monk, every nun, so that they have their own views, opinions, ideas, emotions, guilt, remorse, fear, desires, loneliness, alienation, Now you might think that we spend our time trying to get rid of all these things. That's another mistake about meditation, is the fact that you have to get rid of something. You meditate in order to maybe get rid of anger, or get rid of jealousy, or get rid of fear. That's not it. To be so peaceful with these things that you don't mind their presence anymore. With anger, with greed, with fear and doubt and worry, and be so peaceful, so kindly that you don't mind them being there anymore. You're willing that they just be there and let them go. Because those conditioned things go on their own. And when you are willing to let them go, then they go, they cease, rather than just be repressed. When you're trying to make them go, you repress them. Repression is like, like pushing something out here looking this way. It's still here. What The problem is still here, but you don't see it because you're looking the other way. That's what we do when we annihilate things. But cessation is we're sitting here, we're aware the unpleasant condition, or the pleasant, whatever it is. And then it has a chance to become fully conscious and to cease. So meditation is allowing things to become conscious that before we've never allowed to become conscious, such as different, such as fears. Fear is something that we tend to just react to very blindly, run away from immediately, or doubt and worry, depression, fear of death. All the nagging, irrational, silly, trivial, foolish, dull, doubting, uncertain, or horrible, disgusting things that we tend to suppress or repress. In meditation we're allowing them to become conscious. So it's called the way of, of uh, the way of no preferences. The great way has no preferences. Meaning that we can now allow something that before we wouldn't allow we allow it to be conscious and let it go and in that letting go it can cease in other words it arises and then it goes away doesn't you don't kind of push it back force it back keep it a prisoner in your mind 
Now this is a way of freeing the mind from the burdens of guilt, remorse, and fear, and doubt, and worry, and dullness, and stupidity. That if we don't do this, we tend to accumulate all kinds of things through a lifetime. And the burden of life becomes increasingly more heavy as we get older, as if we have no way of letting things go. So this is a very important kind of thing to be doing. The worldly life, say our, our society here, teaches us how to hold on and get things, doesn't it? Our conditioning in this society is to get things. Just looking at the Sunday newspaper, all the advertisements are trying to interest you in getting something, buying something, acquiring, attaining, achieving. But there's nothing in our society that, that talks about cessation. Psychology doesn't even know about cessation. Science and psychology, they, they talk about maybe exchanging your conditions. Maybe you've, you've got some not very nice conditions in your mind. You, maybe you're a depressed person. And so they, they try to make you in, from a depressed person into a happy person or into a normal person. Think maybe you should, they think that uh, there's a certain normal state that you should be in. But it's not becoming normal, according to the views of psychologists and psychiatrists, or becoming happy, but in freeing ourselves from becoming. It's an endless process of trying to hold on to things, trying to become something, get something we don't have yet, or trying to get rid of things that we have that we don't want. Now, for example, all of us have human bodies, and they are subject to all kinds of things. Pleasures, we can use them for seeking pleasure. We can get a lot of sensual pleasure out of the body, but also we can equally, we can get an equal amount of miserable pain. The body is subject to both pleasure and pain. The body is born, grows up, gets old and dies. And all of us know what we have in store for us. We're all getting older. Old age. So that the, when you think about that very much, when you think about getting older, what, what, what is the general feeling in your mind? Is that a pleasant thought, the idea of getting older? Generally speaking, do we, do we consider old age a kind of privilege and something to look forward to? Or do we generally think of it as a, a frightening time when we are subject to all kinds of increasingly more res physical restrictions? We get, we, we're not so desirable anymore. People don't want you around. Put you off in an old people's home. 
you begin to lose control of yourself, get senile, you lose your memory, and then the death of the body. That, is that what life is all about? Just this being born, growing up, getting old and dying. Is that, is that what it's all about? Is that all there is to it? Is that all there is to a life of a human being? Is that the significance of our life? Is that it really doesn't have any significance except that it's just uh, some, something that happens and we don't even know why or what the, the point of it is. Now in meditation we're penetrating to the limits of our human condition. We're not making assumptions about ourselves being human beings or that life is a pointless negative experience. We're not making assumptions that we're meant for something higher or greater either. We're not trying to convince ourselves that, that, that there's something greater or better that we can look forward to in the future when we die. But in meditation, we're actually pushing to the limits of our human condition, to understand the limitations of our human condition as it is. So you'll know exactly what it is, the limitations of being a human being. Oh. And that's wisdom. Once you know the limitations of your human, of your human condition, then you know how to live in the right way, in a skillful way. Until you know, until you know that, you will always be caught in just perfunctory habit, conditions of the moment changing, trying to become something, trying to get rid of something. A kind of helpless victim of moods and feelings and memories and conditioning. Now meditation, as, as the Buddha was teaching it, was this penetration through wisdom, knowing the limits. When the Buddha was enlightened, when Gautama Buddha was enlightened, he still was he still had a human body. He touched touched the earth. He recognized the limitations of his of the human condition. And he lived forty odd years longer than that after enlightenment as a human being, teaching other human beings. And he taught in such a way that his teaching survives to this time, so they're teaching it tonight here in London. Because it is a teaching of realization of truth, for one thing, recognize that, that your, the limitations of being a human being. What are they anyway? What can you really know as a human being? What is knowledge? Our society tends to elevate and give great importance to conceptual learning learning about things and creativity, creating new things and ideas. So, 
We like to play with our mind. It's an age where we end up being just rather clever children, aren't we? We like to play games with our mind. I think that now they have uh, computer games. You see little children playing with computers. Fascinating, intelligent games that we can all play now. Increase our intelligence, our ability to associate one thing with another, according to systems of logic. Figure things out. Abstraction. Attachment to ideas, to things that we see, that we create, and things that we hear. But all these things will disappoint us in the long run, because no matter how clever we are, how intelligent or how creative, how artistic we might be, it all ends in death, senses fading out, artists and scientists get senile, wet the bed, die, rather sad sometimes to read about the death of famous or great people because their, their lives were so like kind of wonderful exciting inspiring lives and then then they get old and die and forget things and become a bit senile, a bit balmy difficult, get lost at night and then die. The great, the insignificant human beings, men, women, rich and poor. So the limitations of human of our human condition are that it's a span, isn't it? It's a span, a lifespan. Being a human being means you have you have to exist within the limitations of your human condition for the span of your body's life. From birth until the death of this, this thing here, this body. So is there something we should learn from all this? <laughs> from this human dilemma. What is there to learn from it? From being like this. One thing we can learn. Life, as we meditate, is a constant learning. Because life is forever changing. The changing, moving, always changing and moving from one thing to another. We have these perceptions that somehow we'll find some place or some time and everything won't change and it will be, maybe it'll be, we can find a kind of utopian society in the future where everything will be just right. Isn't that what modern uh, uh, utopian idealism is about? Hoping that someday, sometime, that maybe through evolution mankind will achieve a state where everything will be just very pleasant, will be a utopia. But even in utopias, you get old and die, 
get senile, lose your mind. Because the human condition is, its nature can never really be a satisfactory, can never really satisfy it. The conditions, the sensory world is an unsatisfactory world. Its nature is unsatisfactory. Meaning that we can never be satisfied with the senses, with sensory knowledge, sensory experience. It will gratify but not satisfy. Because it is unsatisfactory. Now when we really awaken to this truth, we don't demand satisfaction from it anymore. So we don't suffer from it. We only suffer from the sensory world when we expect it to satisfy us. When we expect it to be something that it cannot be for us. We expect our bodies to say, we'd like them to always be young and good looking and healthy, but they, they won't stay that way. Because they're unsatisfactory they, our human body can never really satisfy the human condition on all levels intellectual, emotional, physical its nature is to be unsatisfactory but that is not self it's not ours anyway so in our human condition they as conventional human beings we began to take note of this, to reflect on it, to consider it, to investigate and know the limitations, the limits, push it, your mind to the limit, so you know that the simple truth that the Buddha taught, all that arises passes away, it's impermanent, and it's not what one is. And this is the way, as a human being, we move toward the Amata Dhamma, or the immortal truth, where all conditions merge, where there's no longer two. There's no thought, no concept, no word that can give you that truth. That's the Amata truth has to be realized. The meditation is a way of realization. What? Realizing what? Realizing the limits, the unsatisfactory nature of the sensory world doesn't mean a, a negative criticism or denial of it, but an, a full acceptance of it without expecting it to be anything other than what it is. When we don't demand and expect the world to be otherwise, we can always operate within its limitations much more skillfully than when we are constantly demanding, expecting, hoping, and criticizing, complaining about it. As long as we demand that this world be otherwise, we're always going to be caught in 
trying to, to make it into something. Dwelling on its faults, on what's wrong with it, on what's wrong with oneself, what's wrong with other people, what's wrong with the society we live in. We do that all the time here, don't we? There's so much negativity now in Britain because people just dwell all the time on what's wrong with it. Exaggerating all its problems, faults, defects. It's like being obsessed, obsessed with a scar. You see the scar only, you can't see the face of a person because you're only looking at an ugly scar. <clears throat> you say, what an ugly face. <laughs> and all you're looking at is a scar. That's what blindness is. We, we can only, when we're obsessed with something, we can't see beyond it. We're blinded by our obsessions, by our fears, by our desires. So meditation is letting go of that obsession. You're getting some perspective on desire, on fear. When you let it go, then you see it as an object rather than as a personal thing. You no longer see it as a personal quality. So in meditation we are being that which is awake, being that which is alert. We observe how even in under the best conditions we can create misery. Just observe that. Because we forget that. We, we, we take the miserable as being so real that somehow something pleasant like this particular setting seems insignificant. Maybe a miserable problem of yours seems more important now than just being at peace here in this room. That misery, miserable problem is important, but this being here peaceful in this room somehow isn't so important. We give a lot of importance to things of importance. And just being able to reflect, to just be here, doesn't seem terribly important on the level, on the scale of values. One time I'm in Cambridge, I was leading a meditation weekend at this place where all the CND and nuclear arms anti-nuke people would come. Sitting there eating my meal one one afternoon, before noon it was, sitting there eating my meal, and I felt this very disruptive vibration come into the room. I was sitting, I didn't see, but I just felt something very disruptive come in. And so then this young man comes over and he starts going, having a go at me. He says, he says, you're just, you aren't doing anything for peace. <laughs> what good is just sitting there watching your breath all weekend when the world's going to blow up? And he made it sound like as if it was up to me to stop it from blowing up. He said we had to go out and fight for peace. Do something. 
and I reflect, this is the most unpeaceful person I've met so far. <laughs> and yet he talks about peace. Because he thinks getting rid of nuclear weapons is the problem. He thinks once you get rid of nuclear weapons, then there's going to be peace. No. Peace is, the problem is not with nuclear weapons, but with ignorant human beings. Unpeaceful, selfish, misguided human beings, isn't it? Nuclear weapons are just as they are. Really no need to make such terrible things. If there were, if there were, if human beings were, were wise, then they wouldn't make such stupid things. But because human beings are so stupid and selfish and foolish and unwise, they make things like that. But yet we have no right to condemn other people for being selfish and ignorant when, when we are really no better, are we? If we're not putting forth that effort towards awakening, towards wisdom in our own life. Really irritating and annoying to go around accusing someone else when you yourself aren't doing anything either. And if you're doing it yourself, then you don't feel any great need to go around condemning others. But you can see the possibilities in your own life of being awake, so that your lifetime say, can be skillfully lived. You can learn, you can observe, you can witness too the way things are, free yourself from delusion, free yourself from the delusion that you are a conditioned being that is born, gets old and dies freeing yourself from all the pain, the misery, the burden of self, of me and mine that you've accumulated. And for the rest of your life you can keep letting go so that you don't make burdens, create burdens for the rest of your life. Then you're called what is a field of blessing. A field of merit. A wise human being is like, to the world, the universe is like beautiful flower, is to the landscape. A wise human being has a, has a, a powerful effect on everything around. It's like a light in the dark. It lights up everything around you. So reflect on this, what I have said this evening, practice of meditation, we're trying to make as many opportunities, occasions as much as possible, so that you can all become enlightened very quickly. Sadhu <laughs>
not any different than the ones now. Like a green hazing and illusion. Superstition, fears, doubts, and worries. And egos, and you read the sutras, it's full of ego, conceit, arrogance, fear. So just like people nowadays. Oh, that's different. You read those sutras, and people tell me could easily take place in England, some of those stories. <laughs> Modern day England. So I don't believe anybody when they say things like that, it's impossible. I've never, I just don't believe that. You have to find out yourself. You have to know the truth yourself. You have to put forth that effort to know, to know what you can know, to know the limitations of knowing, of the known and the unknown. To learn from life as you're living it, to be awake. You start thinking about Buddhist doctrine, Buddhist teaching, and about different levels of attainment and all that. You just get into the state of doubting. And they'll be quite sure. So you don't have to check yourself with a list in a book. But to know, just that simple knowing, that all that arises part of the way and is not self. Until you know for sure, until there's a constant, continuous knowing, in which any condition of the body or mind does not delude you, no matter what is important, no matter how fascinating or how boring, no matter how important or unimportant, whether it's nothing or something, you know that all that arises passes away and not self. And from that position, then you, you know the truth. Somebody asked me and said, well, you can, you can do these things. What about me? I'm just an ordinary person, layman, sitting in an ordinary body. Well, I think of doing all that, I, I realize I can't do it. It's too much. Too much for me. I think if you think about it, you can't do it, that's all. Don't think about it, do it. to think about whether you can or you can't, you end up thinking you can't, so I guarantee that. So it's not a matter of thinking about it, but doing it. Thought always takes you into doubt. People that think about life can't do anything. They never get anything done. Just like learning a language. If you think about it, you'll never learn it. You have to just do it. Or play a musical instrument. Oh, I'd like to play the violin. Wouldn't it be nice if I could play the violin? But, you know, maybe you don't have a, 
aptitude for music. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to play concerts by wonderful sonatas? But then, you know, when you were in school, you were you didn't you didn't receive the best grades in music. Somebody says you're a bit toned down. And then then it takes years. I read a, the biography of Yasha Heisitz. It took him years to learn how to play violin. He was a genius, and I'm just an ordinary nobody, and I probably couldn't do it. By the time he goes into that, of course, you never do get around to doing it, so you never play the violin ever. I think about what I have to do, I I don't want to do it anymore. I just want to go and fade away somewhere, drink a cup of tea. And <laughs> There's something that we just do. We keep doing it. Remember when I when I had the insight, I thought, oh, I can't do that. I can never do that. His voice, kind of nagging voice inside. What makes you think you can do anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> If you, if it's worth doing, then just do it. Make your life, use your life, your body, your mind, use it wisely for watching, observing how things work. When you're depressed, learn from the depression. When you're sick, learn from the sickness. When you're happy, learn from happiness. When you're successful or a failure, these are all possibilities for learning. In the world in life, nothing is wasted. You'll have your cycles of success and failure, happiness and misery, and because we all do. Sometimes life will be very kind of wonderful, getting everything you want. And but also reflect that that is impermanent. He's seen what in the mind. I've seen this when, when life really gets wonderful for me. Life goes really hard. I start worrying what will happen when it changes. <laughs> <laughs> Can't last much longer than you do it to be true. <laughs> I know something terrible is going to happen tomorrow. Because I'm so happy today. <laughs> but those things we can't control very much. Change, societies change, times change, it's all changing. Bodies get older. Friends come and then they go away. Seasons change. But we keep observing that change. Life gets really some of some of us have learned a lot from sickness. Oh, I'm sick. I can't meditate. 
I remember when I had malaria in Thailand. I told him in Thailand, I don't know if I can't move it. I'm so weak, I'm so sick. I can't meditate anymore, it's too weak. It's meditate on the sick. I'm ill. That's quite an insight. I was just watching my, my aversion, my apathy, my depression, these conditions changing. You know, just, I learned a lot of how I would, how, what would happen to my mind when I started feeling physically weak or having fever. Or when I couldn't do, when I didn't have the vigor and strength to do what I wanted to do. Or when sickness would interfere with what I was planning to do. I didn't want to be bothered. It slowed down my weakness or fever. This constant watching, the silent listening, silent watching, is your way of life. So then life as it happens, you experience it, highs and lows and all that you learn. It always arises past the way of not self. Then you began to understand sitting, you say death is an illusion caused to return. But there's nothing to fear. There's nothing you have to get that you don't have. There's nothing that you have to get rid of. Aspect ascetic purifying his mind. Years of of discipline, meditation and so on. Now he's teaching in the United States. Address you, speak to you on the Dhamma. When you listen to a Dhamma talk, it's the important thing is to open the mind up so that you are with what's being said rather than either agreeing, disagreeing, or, or uh, trying to argue at any point. What we want to do, the aim of Buddhist teaching is to open the mind in order to see, see the mind itself, direct experience of your own mind. This is what most people do not see in themselves. They see everything that is not themselves as being themselves. And that's the problem of the world, why the world is so confused and so much anguish and despair and fear because people don't know themselves. They know about, they know a lot about everything. The modern people nowadays, educated people know a lot about everything. But that which is closest, nearest, that where the, all the pain and anguish and despair begin and end, that they don't know. like being so close to something you can't see it. Something's too close you don't even notice it. And you might, you might notice that which is far away before you notice, really know yourself. So we read biographies and about people thinking that helps us to understand human nature as we, as we read case histories, testimonials, biographies, 
of people that we've heard out for, haven't heard out for, whatever. So we know a lot about, say, Napoleon, Hitler, President Kennedy, Henry VIII. Enormous volumes have been printed on all these people that we know about. But ourselves, we may not know at all. So listening to a Dharma talk isn't to, it is not to get information, not to acquire more information about Buddhism as such, but to listen to the Dhamma, listen to yourself, in other words, listen to the mind. Now the Buddhist approach isn't one where you're taking a position of agreement or disagreement on any issue. You're not here to to decide whether I'm right or wrong in anything I say, but to note the effect of what I say on you. Whether it brings interest or boredom, confusion, clarity, uh, hope or despair. And we're not asking that, it, that even that you be inspired or find this at all interesting. But to note your own reaction to, say, just the sound of my voice and the things that I'm saying. So that you're opening the mind up to observe yourself rather than just trying to grasp hold of what I'm saying and maybe believing what I say is true or disbelieving. Now this way of, of listening is a very Buddhist way, the way the Buddha taught, where most of us have been trained, conditioned through our education, through our society, to listen to things in order to gather information. People writing notes and trying to store up information with tape recorders. <laughs> trying to store up information about this. Now we have all the equipment now, don't we? We have libraries, vast libraries, all kinds of electronic equipment now to, to, to uh, preserve anything that's been said. So much money, so much time, energy has been invested in storing up information. And yet all information is a condition of our mind. And what we don't know is the mind itself. We become so enraptured, so attached, so deluded by the conditions of body and mind that we don't see the mind. We don't know the mind. So in listening to a Dhamma talk, to a Dhammatesana, is to just watch and listen to yourself. The silent watcher, they call it the practice of the silent watcher, or the silent listener. In other words, you're not commenting on anything. There's no need to go and grasp or judge or criticize about anything, but just observe that in yourself which tends to do that. That which doubts, that which hopes, 
that which expects or that which uh, feels despair or depression, that which feels greed or lust or that which feels hatred and anger, worry, confusion, depression. These are the conditions of the mind. Now the Buddha taught that these condition phenomena, if you, if, if you really listen and observe a condition as a condition, whether it's a good one or a bad one, pleasant or painful, it doesn't matter, we began to see that these are really not anything other than just that, changing conditions. But they're not people, they're not, they're not kind of permanent <coughs> personalities. <coughs> they're not anything that you can say is really yours or anyone else. Greed, when it goes through my mind, and greed when it goes through your mind, is this greed. It's not Venerable Tomato, it's not Leonard, not Colin. It's this greed, whether it's Greed in my mind, going through this one, going through Collins, through Catherine. It's the greed, that's all. It's not it's not anything but just that. We begin to see it as anatta, not as a personal thing. Where when you don't know this, when you've not investigated or understood the nature of your mind, you tend to regard it as a personal thing. Our problem with me is I'm greedy. I'm too greedy. That's my problem. That makes it sound like the greed that goes through your mind, you make that into, you attach, you project or create a perception of it as being a personal either virtue or fault. If you're attached to your virtues, you become arrogant and haughty. If you're attached to your faults, you become depressed, neurotic. <laughs> and even see them in our languages, that they were say your fault, as if they were really yours. But say the, the unpleasant conditions that go through your mind, one tends to feel one shouldn't have those. Now, for example, in monastic life, being a Buddhist monk, one is a very high-minded, noble kind of idea, ideal set for a man, woman, to live this life. And so it's very, very set on a very high ideal. But then the conditions of the mind can still be mean and petty and nasty and so forth. But if you're attached to the ideal, then you feel terribly guilty about any conditions that go through your mind that don't live up to, aren't they, uh, up to that ideal. So you develop guilt, you become uh, depressed, you feel you're worthless. Because you've attached to something very high-minded, something very noble, and then you, uh, then when anything less than that becomes conscious, attains consciousness, you feel that you have slipped or that you are unworthy, that you are somehow not noble because the conditions of your mind aren't that way. Now the Buddhist position is not one of 
passing judgments like that, but just noting this. Being able to recognize knowing things as they are is what we call the Buddha. The Buddha is that which knows, that which is awake. So in our practice of meditation, we are practicing by being awake, aware of the conditions of the mind and body as this, that. Now this is what we call practice, because the force of habit is one, the habits are always to attach to these things as me and mine, because that's what they seem to be, how they seem according to the way we perceive the way we've been conditioned to perceive ourselves in the world we live in, the conventional realities, the way things seem to be, and the way we've been conditioned to perceive, it seems like this is that we are separate, definite individuals. When you really think about yourself very much, when I think about myself very much, I, I feel totally separate from any of the rest of you. If I think about myself, about my family, my past, uh, what I've done, what I hope to do, the kind of personality I have, it, it seems so separate and alienated from anything else. There's nobody walking along the street, the way things seem to be, the way we perceive just people on the street as being strangers or people that we don't know. We feel alienated and separate. If you don't know them, you don't, you don't know what they might be. They might be pleasant or unpleasant or what. But that's in relationship to me, to what I perceive myself to be. Now when, I, when I'm convinced that I am this physical body, when, when, I, when this perception is strong in my mind, that I'm this body that you see here, well then, this body is subject to, uh, people can uh, compliment it, they can say very nice things, or they can, they can uh, slander it, they can admire it, or they can hate it, uh, it can be damaged, it can be ill, sick, it can be hurt easily, it gets old, and then we know that it are, it's capable of dying at any moment. These bodies are very uncertain conditions. And because we're so, if we seem to be these bodies, this is what the way it seems to be, because that seemingness is so real, because we never question that assumption, we never investigate the way things are, so we accept the assumption that somehow this is me, this body is me. Then, of course, we have to spend the, all our lives trying to protect it, hold on to it, uh, trying to keep it from being too uncomfortable, being upset when anybody criticizes or makes fun of it, trying to live in a way and make it so that people will say how lovely it is, trying to uh, protect it, keep it from being too painful, too unpleasant. But one thing you can be sure of is that 
bodies, their nature is to get old, get sick, and die. So no matter how careful you are, how much energy you put into trying to be useful and healthy, the body will inevitably take us to old age, sickness, and death. Now that's an important thing to recognize. Talking to some people recently who are in their 60s, and they've never contemplated like this. They've never thought about it in this way. So much of their life has been uh, the energy is put into trying to hold on to or to preserve youth, good health. And in doing that, they've had to go through all kinds of operations and, and uh, so forth, enormous bills, doctor's bills, just trying to, to keep the body from seeming, you know, from, from getting, trying, not willing to recognize that it's getting old. And then as it gets old, it weakens. The senses aren't so good. Senses fade, lose their strength. The body gets stiffer. And so and then death of the body. Now this body is, because it is not ours, this is why we really can't uh, change it, its uh, pattern. Because it is born, and it grows up, then it gets old and dies. And this is the nature of the body, of, and this is the, the pattern of all conditioned phenomena. All that we can see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, follows this same pattern of beginning, arising, and passing, ending. Now, it would be pretty miserable if this is what we are, if we are these bodies. If this is what I am. What, what is there left? Just old age and death. Some people will think, well, that's the way it is, so we might as well just forget about it and try to, to squeeze as much pleasure out of the few remaining years as we can. But even mentally, as you get older, you don't find the pleasure in life that you did when you were younger. The things that you enjoyed when you were younger aren't so enjoyable anymore as you get older. <laughs> and because people don't realize that, you find old people sometimes trying to act like young people by doing all the things that young people enjoy doing thinking that that will uh, somehow, because they found that so much fun, so much pleasure when they were young, that they think they should have that same enjoyment when they're middle-aged or older, but they don't. So mentally, not only physically, but mentally, things are constantly changing. Just like when we were children, the things I used to enjoy doing when I was five years old, I no longer like to do. that may be eating. Basic, I think, but the kind of things that I used to be able to spend hours doing when I was a five-year-old boy, I 
to be bothered doing that. Because it's changed, not only physically changed, but emotionally, mentally changed. So those changes are, they are what we are not. We're not any of those changing conditions. The child, we're not a child, we're not a middle-aged person, we're not an old person, we're not a, a man or a woman. These are what we call the conventional realities that if we investigate them, penetrate them with wisdom, we begin to free ourselves from that blind perception and all the pain and misery that goes along with that attachment to conditions which can never ever satisfy us. Just like you might think, um, if I were wealthy, then I'd be really happy and satisfied. So you spend all your, your life making a lot of money, and then you get enormous amount of money and you're only gratified temporarily, you're not satisfied forever, are you? There's no sensual thing that ever really satisfies us. We say we are temporarily gratified when we get what we want. You give me something I want and I'm gratified temporarily. It gratifies me. But it doesn't permanently satisfy me. I had say, um, when, when I was given this new arms bowl, I was given a, I'd always wanted a stainless steel arms bowl. In Thailand, you see, they used to, they never had stainless steel arms bowls until a few years ago, and uh, they, you always had these steel, just steel ones that would rust. They had to spend so much time trying to keep the rust out of your arm bowl. <laughs> and then they started making the stainless steel ones. They became a real status symbol among monastics. <laughs> and then somebody gave me a stainless steel bowl. But it, it, it was not it was it didn't permanently satisfy me, gratified me temporarily. In fact, it's only a couple of months ago I was thinking of trading it in for an old steel one. <laughs> we think maybe someone else when we meet the right person. If I, there's somebody, there's this kind of romantic vision in, in European mythology anyway, that there's someone made in heaven for each one of us. And that when we meet that person, we'll be happy forever. Like Cinderella and Prince Charming. So we keep thinking, when I meet that right person, the one that was made for me in heaven, will be the answer. All my suffering will be gone. We'll live happily ever after. But we know that's not true either. <laughs> that 
Even when we meet the person that was made for us in heaven, it's still unsatisfactory. It gratifies us temporarily. The hope. Notice the, the movement of the mind, always looking for something else. Even when you have everything, and everything is very pleasant, and you're surrounded by very nice people, there's nothing wrong, there's, the mind still moves trying to find something else. Or it can start worrying about maybe all these lovely things will be taken away from me. Or I see something threatening coming near and I have to, I have to get rid of it. So the movement of the mind, say, the conditions of the mind are that which move toward something or trying to get something or get rid of something. And so when we, even when we get everything we want, the mind still operates like that. The more you have, then you still want more. Then you want to get rid of that which you don't want anymore. So there's the desire to get hold of something, to hold on to something, or the desire to annihilate. This you can see in your own mind, these two forces, these two energies. One trying to get, hold on to, the other trying to get rid of, push away. Now who is it or what is it that can watch this? That which is awake and that is aware of these of these two kinds of desires. Who is that? For convenience, we call that the Buddha, the, the knowing, that which knows. And that which knows is not any personal thing. It's not, it's not my knowing. It's not Venerable Tomatoes uh, talent or ability or unique ability at all. It's not anyone, doesn't belong to anyone. But it's what all of us can take refuge in is in that knowing, that clarity. And that's what we really mean when we say Bhutang Saranangatami. I take refuge in the Buddha. It's as much in, it's the same as in men as in women. Say, can, can women be enlightened or, or can men or what? Not a matter of man or woman, is it? None of these conditions will ever get enlightened. These conditioned things can only cease. <laughs> so these conditions, they don't expect them to ever get enlightened. They won't. When you do that, they'll only take you to despair. But note that they are conditions. Just that constant, persistent reflection, investigating on these conditions, reminding yourself, because we forget, we, so the pull of the sensual world is very powerful. These bodies are very powerful kind of uh, forces, they're so subject to pain and unpleasant sensations, aren't they? The sensory world, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, these sense organs, they, 
we, we have, we're so attached to what we see, to being able to see or hear, to taste things. Have you ever had a cold where you could no longer taste anything, how frustrating it is? How unpleasant it is to have to eat food that you can't taste anymore. We do enjoy tasting things, smelling things. When bad, stinking odors come near, how awful it is, how we want to get away. Or beautiful fragrance of flowers. What we hear, very, now they've, they've uh, through modern technology, you can, you can listen to the most incredible sounds now. These the sounds that they make record on tapes and records. Fantastic kind of uh, talent and ability the human beings produce and make most amazing and alluring and also frightening and horrifying sounds. So the sensory world is a very, very powerful impression on the mind, but that's all it is. The sensory world is a condition. It's not an absolute. It's not ultimate truth. And as human beings, our ability to free ourselves from the illusion or the delusion of the sensory existence as being me and mine, that's what we can do in this lifetime. This is what is within our ability as human beings. You see, this is what the Buddha was pointing to, was this ability of us as human beings to reflect on the way things are. So this is the way of the Buddha. We call the middle way. The middle way because it, it's a transcendent way, a letting go of extremes, of that extreme that seek something to get hold and attach, or the ex extreme to get rid of something and annihilate it. Now I just know from my own practice that watching my mind, I see, I, I can just, for years now I've been doing this, seeing that movement towards getting something or getting rid of something. Then we start taking a position, like we think, well, I shouldn't want anything. Very high-minded idea, isn't it? I shouldn't want anything. So I might believe that for a while, that what's wrong with me is I still want things that I shouldn't want anymore. I shouldn't want anything anymore. So I try to not want anything. <laughs> Doesn't work, does it? <laughs> Because then you want not to want. It gets complicated. It's confused that way. You want to not want. So you find that frustrating. People get strong desires to get rid of desire. You know that one. Meaning that you create more energy than this desire to annihilate and get rid of, which reinforces the desires that you're trying to get rid of, rather than 
letting them cease, they just reinforce. You created a cycle of habit. The desire comes, the desire to get rid of the desire, and it, it becomes a cycle, a repetitive cycle. And samsara means the vatta samsara, vatta samsara, is the cycle, endless cycles that go on, because we don't, we never let them cease. We don't know how to let them cease. We just keep reinforcing them. They just keep going round and around and around. Now the Buddha teaching is one where he pointed to the way that a human being like you, like myself, can let these cycles cease. It's not beyond, it's not, you don't have to be Superman or Wonder Woman. don't have to, to be a special kind of uh, unique creation. But this teaching that the Buddha laid down was, was for human beings. Now a human being, we, we might take that for granted that we are all human beings. We're all human beings. But we might all have human being bodies, human-like bodies, but mentally we may not be that way at all. We're still caught up in the beliefs of this and that, following the habits of our desires, eating, sleeping, drinking, carrying on, just following the momentum of habit, means that we, aren't, we haven't reached that level of humanity yet that you can observe and investigate. Now there are a lot of human beings that, that look like human beings, but they still aren't really to that level yet. In other words, they can't reflect on themselves yet. So Buddhist teach, the Buddha established his teaching, established a Sangha of monks in order that his, this particular teaching could be carried through time to be made available for potential human beings. So that the awakening of a being to his humanness, to being human, means that we're awakened to the Dhamma, to the truth. The Buddha is the way that we're awakened through that Buddha knowing, through that alertness, that awareness, that awareness, that clarity, mental clarity that can observe your own dullness. Even when you're dull and sleepy, you can observe that dullness and sleepiness. You know that, you, oh, I'm sleepy, and I'm so tired. And then you get caught in the sleepiness, and as your habit is, isn't it? But there's also that which can reflect, can investigate that very dull, dull mental state. And that which investigates and knows isn't dull, isn't sleepy. 
it's the awakened one, that which is awake. And so, as I said before, this isn't a personal thing, so we still do make no claim to it as being any personal attainment. We don't go around saying, I am the awakened one, <laughs> unless you're a bit daft and misunderstand the teaching. You don't make claims that you, that's you, because that's another uh, delusion, isn't it? Not a matter, it's not a matter of claiming that, but of being that which is awake. If you are that, then there's no need to claim it. You only claim it when when you uh, when you don't when you're not awake, when you're heedless. Then you go around saying, "I am the awakened one." <laughs> now this is important for you to consider this kind of teaching because. This is, a, at this time, there's a great need for this kind of awakening. There always has been. You can see just the history of human civilization is so fraught with so much violence and selfishness and human people doing the most dreadful things to each other And now we're on the verge of, of, a, uh, of a time that could be the most horrendous of any, having super weapons where you could blow up so many people, blow up the whole earth, that it's important that each one of us put forth this effort to being awake. Because it, the, way, the only hope lies in, in our life in each one of us, really. Don't put any hope in the governments of any country. <laughs> or in, quote, peace talks in Geneva. <laughs> that's not where it will, that's not where peace is. Peace is your true nature. Peace is where you can abide wherever you are, wherever your body happens to be, whatever is going on, no matter how it feels, whether it's old or sick or whatever, in good health or bad health, peace is that your true nature, and you begin to, when you realize that, you abide in the peace of your mind rather than in the conditions of it. Rather than seeking ideal conditions for your mind, you can let go of the conditions. Let things cease, let things dissolve. Now that peace is common to all of us. It's not mine in contrast to yours. It's where we incline to and where we merge, where all of us merge, where there's no longer, we no longer feel this alienation that we feel, that we, that we seem to feel when we're attached to the body, to the emotion to the perceptions. Like I can sit up here and I can perceive you all in various ways. But what do I do when I'm sitting here? I'm sitting here. Things are just like this as they are right now and I can create all kinds of people out of the perceptions I have of you. 
according to the mood I'm in. If I'm in a jolly mood, then I, well, they're, they're really lovely people, love these people. England's a wonderful country, jolly old England. Hail to the Queen. I'm in a good mood. English people have been very kind to me. So the perceptions all come out positive. They say, Venerable Sumedho, you're the greatest thing that's ever happened to England. England's a wonderful country. Or I can sit up here. People have been very difficult, critical, ungrateful, suspicious, misunderstanding everything. A hopeless country. I'm going back to Thailand. <laughs> now where does that come from? Where does England come from? The good jolly old England that I love. Wouldn't think of leaving. Or the England that I'm fed up with, had enough of and want to leave. That's something that comes out of here is something I create out of like and dislike, praise and blame, doesn't it? We all do that with 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 each other, with ourselves, with the things around us. Living in a monastery, some of the monks and nuns are very good. Never complain. They're really good couldn't live without them. But then there's those others that complain and cause trouble and do things that annoy you and never seem to do it rightly the way that you want them to. And you'd like to wish they'd go. <laughs> now where does that come from? That wanting the ones you like to stay and the ones you don't like to go. That comes out of the mind, doesn't it? That's what we create. That's what we create around the way things are. When we let go of that, through understanding it, we abide in the peace where we merge, so that we can have the. We we're no longer exaggerating or making problems out of anything. The disobedient monk the thankless, the, the uh, ungrateful, the annoying, or the devoted, lovely, adoring. We see these things operating, but we make no claim. We have no attachment. We let them all go. We find the peace of our mind. We abide in that peacefulness. And that's where we merge. The good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly, men, women, Buddhists, Christians, Muslims, whatever. All conditions merge in the unconditioned. So in our mindfulness, our abiding in, in this mental clarity, the more we practice this way, then the more we begin to let go 
of these cycles of habit. When we let go, then the cycles have a way of ceasing, they're not, no longer being cycles. And then we begin to experience the bliss of an empty mind. So an empty mind is like a spacious mind. Things can come and go, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, confused or tranquil. But there's space for everything or nothing the way of no preferences. So I offer this for your reflection for this afternoon and we'll have a meeting this evening I think. 7.30? meditation for those of you who uh, can come you're welcome <laughs> <laughs>